Okay, now we can begin. In 1974, I took the 10-day course by Goenka. And like many thousands of other people, probably maybe even tens of thousands, he's taught so many people by now, I found the course very beneficial, very cathartic, quite a transformative effect on me, a beneficial one. And I disagree with him about some of his views about what is and is not pure dharma. Okay? But both statements are true. Okay? I disagree with him here, and it was very beneficial. One of the comments that he makes, and I think he probably makes it in every retreat that he's, he's taught, is he gives the analogy of a mother giving a child a bowl of porridge with little cardamom seeds in it. And the child looks at it and says, Mama, why do you put green rocks in my porridge? I don't want green rocks. I don't like green rocks. Why did you put, I don't, I don't like them. And the mother says, if you don't like them, just take them out. They're not green rocks. If you think they are, if you don't like the taste, if you don't like how they look, just take them out and eat the rest of the porridge. But don't be upset. It's okay. Just take out what you don't like. And so he gave this as an analogy, I think a very nice analogy, as he's giving his Dhamma teachings, a tremendously charismatic and, and loving teacher, human being, is that if there's any aspect of my teaching that you just, you just don't take to, you just don't like, you, don't, you just don't like it, don't worry. Just take it out and then accept what you can accept. I think that's very good advice. That part I totally accept with him. I totally agree. So I'm going to make some comments now pertaining directly to loving kindness and to this next phase. And having had feedback from you, I'm very confident that my words that I'm about to offer will be helpful to some of you, because you've told me. So I'm very confident. I don't know how many, but I'm sure some. And I'm quite confident, because I also get feedback from the other side, the comments I'm about to make will not be helpful to other people. And that should be also fine. And so if you find that what I'm about to share is some cardamom seeds that look like green rocks to you, just relax. Because I'm making no attempt, I'm not even trying to please all of you all of the time. I don't quite know how I do that, except to be so bland. But that could be really irritating after a while. And that could piss some people off too. So I'm not going to even try. Okay? All I'll try is to offer the best dharma I can from my trajectory, from my personal history, from my understanding of dharma. That's the best I can do. And so, on that note, Paul Ekman is one of my dearest and most respected friends. And we've worked closely together, very closely together, since oh, the year 2000, developing the Cultivating Emotional Balance program, scientifically studying it. Uh, teaching it. He was, he was fully teaching the first time we taught CEBTT two years ago. He was teaching it from afar because he was not in good health, but we're definitely co-teaching it. And marvelous teacher, as well as an outstanding scientist and also a very ethical and benevolent man with a tremendous respect for the Dalai Lama. He's not religious in any sense of the term, and he's a very ardent, very quite passionate and knowledgeable Darwinian. He really knows Darwin and has tremendous respect for him. So he really is an, a Darwinian. And as a psychologist and who is a Darwinian, his working hypothesis is that we can understand or will eventually understand all of the human impulses, mental processes, uh, in terms of natural selection there, that will pro provide an explanatory net for making sense of and to explain all of the impulses we experience. 
and he's also perfectly aware that there's some that don't, haven't lent themselves to such an explanation thus far. Contempt is hard. Compassion for other sentient beings outside of one's own species, and so it's, it's hard. But there's a working hypothesis, and I respect it. It's not my working hypothesis, but he's a very intelligent man. And this is where his confidence lies, where his faith lies. right? And mine is more in, of course, you know my, where my faith is. And so, but given that, as we're developing, the, through close collaboration for years, developing the Cultivating Emotional Balance program, this 42-hour training, we again came to a point of utter consensus, utter consensus. There are points we, we simply disagree, and we've had lovely debates, very friendly debates going on for years, just now and then. Uh, but at one point, there was no debate. And he's speaking right straight out of just affective psychology, modern research psychology, and one of the best in the field. And he said it is imperative for one's own emotional well-being, emotional balance, as we're attending to self and others, to make a sharp distinction, almost like a scalpel, between the person and the negative traits, the afflictive mental afflictions, the behavioral tendencies that are very harmful on the one hand and the person on the other. That it's quite appropriate to condemn, and I use my words carefully, to condemn certain types of behavior. Come on, it's true, and I don't need to give a list. Where it's just we know as, as decent human beings, there's some type of behavior that is, is to be condemned and with some passion, not like, oh, if you feel like it, you might want to stop. No, I don't need to give examples. You can give examples, right? And there are also certain mental states, attitudes and so forth that are really pernicious, really harmful, really harmful. And they should be condemned. One should actively and maybe even passionately speak out against them. These are really harmful, right? That's good. And where Paul and I came to the same conclusion, I coming from my whole Buddhist background, he coming from a really scientific background, is don't conflate the contemptible or the to be condemned behavior, attitudes, mental processes with the people who harbor them. Any more than you show contempt for a person with TB because they have TB, or a person with epilepsy and you say, oh, you're an epileptic. I can't stand epileptics because, oh, that disease is disgusting. It gives me the creeps. That's horrible, right? To conflate the disease with the person, to conflate the mental affliction with the person, to conflate harmful behavior, behavior worthy of being condemned, and we call that contemptible or condemnable, with the person who's doing it. Because we can all move away from harmful behavior. We can be, if we wish, we can be freed from afflictive attitudes, mental processes, and so forth. And so, Overall, in terms of cultivating emotional balance, this is really imperative. And not only directed outwards, but directed inwards. Here's the basis for all of this self-contempt, self-hatred, self-loathing, low self-esteem. It's fusing one's own negative behaviors, mental afflictions, and so forth, win oneself, and then in a way, quite rightly, condemning. But instead of simply condemning, that is condemning, oh, I did this, this was awful behavior. I had that attitude, that's an awful attitude. Instead of simply condemning the mental process of the behavior, then we condemn ourselves. And now we've, we've dug, a, dug a grave, jumped into it, and we're shoveling dirt on top of ourselves because we provide no release, no escape, now that we've fused our very identity with behavior that is worthy of being condemned. So there's the basis for this terrible mindset that so many people have recognized as being awful, of self-contempt and so forth, and then when it's directed outwards, 
condemning, holding contempt, other people in contempt. Terribly damaging. So point of total convergence, and you see as we're stepping into the second phase of loving kindness practice this morning, if we don't bring that scalpel out and distinguish, then the barriers will, re will remain standing, and they'll be lead, they'll be titanium, they will not fall. As long as we're equating, fusing, integrating other people's behavior, some of it really worthy of being condemned, attitudes, mental states, and so forth, that are terribly harmful, we can say evil, there are such things as evil behaviors and evil attitudes, well, the barriers will remain up, and our hearts will never open as long as we are fusing other people with these afflictions. So, crucial point. So that's where we'll venture in in the practice this morning. So Paul Ekman, Darwinian. I'm not. I have great respect for Darwinian science, but I don't see it as an all-encompassing planetary system that's satisfying to me. So we disagree. Richard Davidson, quite, quite strongly committed to the working hypotheses of materialism. Another man who's a very good friend, ethical, incredibly warm heart, benevolent and altruistic. Also, a lot of respect for the Dalai Lama. Worked with him closely. And then there's Matthew Ricard, well-trained in science, PhD in science, Buddhist monk, must be 40 years by now. He and I, I think we'd have to talk a long time before we found any really significant difference in our views. Because he has a tremendous respect and appreciation for science. And he's also a Buddhist, traditional Buddhist, so am I. He's trained in biology, I was trained in physics in my undergraduate physics, philosophy of science, history of science, graduate, a lot, graduate at PhD at Stanford was a lot of philosophy of science. And so we come in with some professional training. He more on the sciences itself, and I a lot of the context of the science. Also a very, very beloved and, re and respected, deeply respected friend. And so the four of us, Paul, e Paul Ekman, staunch Darwinian, Richard Davidson, quite committed materialist, Matthew Ricard, magnificent monk, me, California hippie. We four got together and we, we had such one, one of the happiest days of my life. I think it was one day, maybe it was two. One of the happiest days, just happiest days of my life, was working with these three guys, writing a paper on human flourishing. It's so much fun. It really was fun. And yet you see, we disagree. And occasionally we'll debate. Mostly we don't. Mostly we're just focusing on common ground. And occasionally we debate. So there's an example there. And I think the example is kind of dwindling as I watch it. This can be very brief. American politics, I think, is very sad these days. Because it seems like the legislature has simply lost the art of respectful debate. It used to be there, and now it seems to have vanished. And the debate is always hostile and contemptuous and denigrating. That's really quite sad for the whole country. I think that's an objective evaluation. I think it's very sad. Yeah. Whereas the kind of debate that I was trained in for years, all through the 70s, from 73 right through 1979, was, ah, and you watch Tibetan monks debate, and you think they're about to throw daggers at each other, or punch each other out, and then kick each other senseless until they're pulps that are just you know, dying in agony. I mean, the passion that's coming up, and the loud voices, and the, the hat waving, and the spanking, and then, yeah, like this, and wow, they must be really hating each other. I'm sorry. You're mistaken. I know it from the inside out. There's also a lot of laughter that comes up, but there's a lot of passion and loud voices and back and forth. And then when the debate's over, they all laugh and we all go home. 
and then the next day you may be debating and taking the opposite side from the one you took yesterday. Because this is how you develop your intelligence. This is one type of intelligence. Other types of intelligence develop meditation as well. But this is one way of sharpening the sword, the blade of your prajna, discriminating wisdom, right? But it's done joyfully, cheerfully. And do they sometimes screw up? Of course, of course. But that's not the norm. I was trained in this for years, especially with the Tibetans. Oh, so much passion, so much shouting and clapping and all that kind of stuff. But there's kind of bubbling a little bit of laughter behind it all along, you know. And never, I mean really almost never. Personal animosity, I disagree with you, therefore I dislike you. You're a bad person. Uh, I don't know if I ever saw that once. I don't think so. I don't think so. So some of you have been listening very carefully to my Dharma talks or comments over the last few weeks may have noticed, if you are really paying attention, that I don't accept the beliefs of scientific materialism. I, I just, I did want to let you know. I don't. On the other hand, I also don't accept the beliefs of Islam. Their fundamental articles of faith are not mine. I, I don't believe them. So, I don't mention Islam that much. I mention scientific materialism quite frequently. Because scientific materialism is where I live. It, it's, it's, it's saturating all the media that I read. I read a lot. It saturates the scientific reports. I, I engage with scientists a lot. I read scientific reports a lot. It's pervasive there, not Islam. It's pervasive. And so while I simply disagree or don't accept the articles of faith of scientific materialism, which are uncorroborated, never scientifically established, and hardly ever questioned by the scientific community as a, lo as, as a whole, while I don't accept them, I don't believe them, where I do feel them some passion, as out on the debating courtyard, while I disagree with you, and I'll, make, I'll debate with you, I'll show you empirical evidence and so forth to, to repudiate the beliefs of scientific materialism, where I feel it's really wrong, and the stronger passion arises, is when people present, scientific materialists present, their way of interpreting science as the only way you can only be a scientist. You can be a scientist if and only if you accept our materialistic beliefs. And if you don't, well, there you're not a scientist. And there are quite a few like that, right? Well, that's not only wrong, that's harmful. But it's also flat out wrong. In 1914, a poll was done by Scientific American to find out how many scientists in America believed in God. 40%, which means they're not materialists. In 1997, Scientific American, again, did the same poll. How many American scientists believe in God? Any guesses from 1914 to 1997? Any guesses in the shift? I know you know, but anybody else? How much? 35%. 5%. Well, how about 40%? You're close. 40% had not changed for all of the tremendous expanse of knowledge from 1914 to 1997, oh, I mean, a number of people have said that we've gained more scientific knowledge in the 20th century than in all of the centuries that preceded it. And 1914 to 1997 pretty well covers that territory. And yet the percentage of American scientists believing in God remained unchanged. The National Academy of Science in the United States has made a flat-out statement. I quote it pretty much verbatim. The question of whether or not God exists is a question about which science is neutral. 
neutral, has nothing to say. And clearly, 40% of American scientists believe that, that they are probably, well, they're probably Christian Jews, maybe a few Muslims thrown in there someplace, and they're scientists. So if one says, no, you, you can't be a scientist unless you believe that everything consists of configurations of mass, energy, space, time, well, I mean, you're just wrong. I mean, that's not even debatable. 40% of American scientists do, therefore you're wrong. I mean, that's it, end of, end of discussion. If you still believe that, then you're delusional. What concerns me here, and I'm gonna wrap up, what concerns me here is when you read science in the popular media, you never hear the voice of the 40%. Or how many more? I don't believe in God as the Christians, Muslims, and Jews believe. I don't believe that. But I'm not a materialist either. Are there other scientists who are like me? I think there are, whether or not they're Buddhist. So we're not even counting them. You never hear the voice. I challenge you, look in the popular media, or even in scientific journals. See if you can find the voice, some article by a person who is not a materialist. They absolutely dominate, so you get the impression that all scientists are materialists, and that's not true. That's deceptive, that's misleading, and that's harmful. A friend of mine from Bhutan recently commented to me that among young Bhutanese, growing up in, the, in a kind of a modern-style education system, they have the impression, teenagers, people in their young 20s in Bhutan, that if you believe in science, you can't believe in Buddhism. If you accept scientific truths, you can't be, you can't be a Buddhist any longer. Well, now the stakes have gotten kind of high. Wait a minute. You're going to sabotage a whole spiritual culture by false beliefs? And that's what they're getting. They're dominating. The scientific materialists are so dominating the sound waves and the education system, even in Bhutan, that these young people who don't, how are they supposed to know? They feel, oh, I have to give up my belief in Buddhism and, and the Dharma and, and my lamas and so forth because I find science so compelling. I'd like to become a scientist. But that's, I find that very sad. And I find it really, that's awful. That's not just incorrect, like believing the Earth was created 7,000 years ago. That's just incorrect. But this is awful. When you sabotage a whole culture with false beliefs, false statements, misrepresentation of science. So you see some passion coming up. But now am I saying, I hate this person, I hate this person? No, this policy is wrong. The genocide in Tibet was absolutely horrifically wrong. This has been the Dalai Lama and the other Lamas and many Tibetans that we hate the Chinese Politburo. We hate them. We want to kill them. We want to harm them. No. The policies are wrong. We're getting the scalpel out. This is what the Lamas are so skillful at doing. The policies are horrendously awful. They are evil. The people are the ones we feel compassion for. Right? This is crucial. I find this tendency. I'm going to wrap up. Don't worry. But... Unfortunately, we're facing another election in the United States. In fact, there are conservative Republicans, moderate Republicans, and liberal Republicans. You never hear the voice of the moderates or the liberals. You never hear it, ever. And those who are actually moderate, they say, oh, no, I'm really a conservative, like the guy who's now running for president. Oh, I'm a conservative. I used to be a moderate, but no, no. Because I have to be a conservative to be considered eligible for the nomination. So their voices are drowned out, as if there aren't any moderate or liberal Republicans. That's very sad, because it's then polarizing. Polarizing. We have arch conservatives on the one side, and they look upon the Democrats, as one Republican said, oh, about a, about a quarter of you are communists. 86 or something of the Democratic in, this, in the House of Representatives are communists. There's a point at which this is not simply wrong. This is really wrong. 
their voices aren't even heard. And so what, are you a socialist or are you a Republican? This is really wrong. If I were a Sufi, you won't believe me, but I'm about to wrap up. <laughs> if I were a Sufi, I would be very troubled by the way Islam is presented all over the press all the time. Check it out. Every time Islam comes up, it's Muslim fundamentalists. And the question is, what have they blown up next? Themselves, another sect, a mosque, a US embassy. What have you blown up next, you Muslims? I knew a Sufi when I was teaching at UC Santa Barbara, University of California, Santa Barbara. He was an atomic physicist, had a, a, a professorial position in Jordan and in Iraq. This is a long time ago. Wonderful man, and a practicing Sufi, an accomplished Sufi. Didn't just believe it, he was a practitioner. He was a dervish, and he was an atomic physicist. Really cool guy. We just struck up a friendship immediately. You know, I, I, I hope he's still alive. We, we've lost contact. And he's a Sufi. I'm not a Sufi. But I can imagine if I'd be a Sufi, I'd be quite upset. That all the media is about the fundamentalists, moderate Muslims, and people like myself, I'm play acting now as a Sufi, our voice never gets heard. And so it makes me cringe to even tell anybody I'm a Muslim, because you'll then you think I'm a Muslim fundamentalist, and you want me to open up my jacket to see whether I'm carrying a bomb. And this makes me feel terrible. This is not only wrong, this is really deeply wrong. That one voice is dominating the others, the actions of the, of the extremists are dominating everyone. And the press goes along with it. Shame on them. Why did you give the microphone once in a while to the moderate Muslims? Why did you give it to the Sufis once in a while, the followers of Rumi, of Avits? Uh, it's such beautiful dharma. They never get the microphone. They never get the press. This is not only wrong. This is really deeply wrong. Okay? But now shall we hate the press? No, that's where we have to bring in the wisdom. And that's where we come to the loving-kindness practice. Let's not to hate the press. Let's not hate the, the, the terrorist fundamentalist Muslims. Let's not hate the Tea Party or the arch-conservative Republicans who regard everybody who doesn't hold their views as unpatriotic and communist. Of course, these are silly views. But to hate the people who hold them is to then be part of the problem and not part of the solution. So there we are. So when you see some passion coming up over the next five, four weeks, I watch my mind carefully. Passion will come up. Since I speak from my own background and I address what I consider to be very, very important in the modern world, and the interface between science and spirituality I think is one of the biggest issues facing humanity today. I also feel that the interface among the world's religions and how we work with each other, I think that's also one of the largest issues in the world today, most important, that it must be handled with wisdom. And when I see people taking adamantine sides, I am a scientist, all religion is rubbish. I am this religion. All other religions are rubbish. I'm religious. All science is rubbish. We see in the press, it's science pitted against creationists. That comes up again and again and again. It's science battling the creationists. The good versus the evil, the smart versus the dumb. Oh, man. You know, it makes me tired. It makes me weep. Because there are so many Christians and Jews and so forth who are deeply committed to their own faith, and they're not stupid, and they're not ignorant, and they're not creationists. 
They're not fundamentalists. And their voice is never heard. Not in the science, science religion category. It's always this polarization. So everything I've said, and again, I'm, I'm sure this was useless for some people, very likely, I won't bet my life on it. I think at least for one or two people, maybe helpful. This is all exactly germane to the cultivation of loving kindness. When Jesus says, love your enemies, does this mean love your enemies' traits? Love your enemies' behavior? Love your men enemies' mental afflictions? Yeah, just as much as a doctor who's treating a, TB, a person with TB says, I love all of you, including the TB. Oh, you sweet little thing, I just wish you, I love you, TB. You're just my favorite, favorite bacteria. That's just silly. No? So there we are. We try to bring, we must bring, the sharp, sharp blade of wisdom into our cultivation of loving kindness. Otherwise, the barriers will never break down. They'll never break down. They really never will break down. We must distinguish the patient from the illness, the person from the mental afflictions. And we develop loving kindness for the person, while perhaps even passionately condemning the mental affliction and the harmful behavior, as we should for ourselves without self-contempt, so we do others without contempt for others. So let's practice. Ideas stir up the mind. But that doesn't mean the mind is necessarily afflicted. It's just active. And then we learn how to control the mind, to disengage when we wish to disengage. And let us do this now as we settle the body, the speech, and the mind. In their natural states, calming, releasing the conceptual mind with mindfulness of breathing.
Now arouse your mind once again into a dynamic mode, as if you just rebooted. But now, rather than simply being caught up in rumination, direct your attention inwards to your own presence, your own being. And let's follow the classic sequence of Buddha Gosa in this step-by-step cultivation of loving-kindness, arousing, first of all, the aspiration. May I be free of that which diametrically opposes loving-kindness, namely ill-will, malice. Each in-breath as you arouse this aspiration, may I be free of enmity. Imagine the darkness of this mental affliction being drawn in and being extinguished in the light of your heart. Imagine being free. I be free of afflictions of the body. free of afflictions of the mind. Each outbreath arouse the aspiration. May I be truly well and happy. May I be hedonically well with all my needs met. And may I be genuinely happy. And with each outbreath, imagine this light from your heart filling, saturating, purifying your whole being.
and imagine it to be so. Direct your attention outwards to one whom you cherish, for whom you feel deep affection. The loving kindness is already there. Attend closely to the lovable qualities within this person. With each in-breath arouse the yearning, may you, like myself, be free of ill will, free of physical affliction, free of mental affliction. As you breathe out, arouse the yearning. May you, like myself, be truly well and happy. Breathe out the light of loving kindness. And imagine the fulfillment of this aspiration.
then turn your attention towards someone for whom you feel fairly neutral, no strong feelings one way or another. This person may have had very little impact on your life or not made much of an impression on you one way or another. But gaze through the veil of appearances to someone very much like yourself. Seek out the common ground. With each in-breath, may you be free of ill will, free of physical affliction, free of mental affliction. With every outbreath, arouse the yearning. May you be well and happy.
finally turn your attention towards a person, someone you know personally, or only from a distance, whose behavior you think is wrong, perhaps whose attitudes, beliefs, you feel are not only wrong, but really harmful. each in-breath arouse a yearning, may you, like myself, be free of ill will, the afflictions of the body, the afflictions of the mind, and imagine them becoming free. With each out-breath, breathe out the aspiration of loving-kindness. May you, like myself, be well and happy.
release all appearances and let your awareness rest in its own nature. Good. Enjoy your day.